You're listening to the Code 4 Podcast. Whatever, 25, you said Code 4. Code 4, 1104. Hello everyone, this is Jeff Richards. I'd like to welcome you to episode number four. It was recorded April 15th, 2021. In this episode, you will get to know police officer Scott Rankin. He tells a very interesting story here. In fact, never in my life did I ever think I would meet someone whose picture was on the back of a milk carton when they were a kid. And you're going to hear about that here. I broke Scott's story into three parts as our conversation's theme changes as we go along his personal timeline. So, many of us in the first responder world have struggled with alcohol, drugs, gambling, etc. Many of us have also struggled in our relationships with others, particularly partners in intimacy. It's a lot easier for most to talk about substances or other addictions than discuss something so deep into our cores like intimacy, shame, vulnerability, and trust. These are some of the things we get into in this and the next two episodes. Scott's story is truly an interesting one. By the end, you may hear something similar to the way you are feeling deep in your heart, and you may feel a sense of hope that no matter how bad things seem, they don't have to stay that way. So with that, we'll begin. Well, this is nice out here. It is nice. I'm sitting with Scott. And why don't you tell people who you are? Yeah. Well, good morning, Jeff. I appreciate you coming uh, coming down to see me all the way to Puyallup. Um, my name's Scott Rankin. Uh, Going to be 46 in June. And uh, I work for the City of Kent Police Department. Been there 23 years. Had a short stint uh, where I worked outside of Detroit in a town called Troy, Michigan, for about uh, 15 months. But other than that, I've spent my whole career uh, in Kent. Um, professionally, I'm, I'm a, uh, a sergeant in patrol, so a patrol sergeant on shift. Been doing that for the last seven years. And you know, professionally, I've been really lucky to do a number of different assignments in my career. Um, personally, married. It'll be 26 years this year, by God's grace, I promise you that. I have... Uh, three children. One is 26. She lives with her husband in Alaska. Uh, she's actually in corrections and in the Army National Guard. Just got back from a deployment to Poland, actually. And our son is a gold mining engineer down in uh, Nevada. He's 23. And our baby, she just turned 16. And literally got her license on Tuesday. So pray for me. Oh, boy. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, so that's pretty much, I think, the basics. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what drew you into police work? Yeah. Well, that's a really good question, actually. I think that the easy answer for me was it was a little bit of a legacy uh, in that my father was uh, was in the Marines in Vietnam and and I went into the Marines as well, right out of uh, high school. And then he spent uh, a little bit of time in his professional careers uh, working in policing in Aspen, Colorado, and then in uh, the Cleveland area 
not too long, but they were professions that uh, he always spoke highly of. Uh, they were honorable, and it just seemed like a natural uh, progression. Um, I'd also come to find out later on, because I didn't necessarily know all of, all of this, that uh, the real reason was truly to uh, help people that couldn't help themselves. I know that sounds uh, very cliche, um, but when you, or for me personally, have gone through things in your life where there was no one seemingly there to, to help you, um, perhaps that police officer would be someone that uh, if but for them, uh, a child specifically would have no one. Uh, to help them. So, but again, I would love to tell you that I knew that as a 22 year old, just getting on the job. Um, I had not made that real connection, uh, yet it's taken me, I think a lifetime to figure out the, the real reasons to a lot of things, but certainly, uh, to why I'm really drawn to well, this profession. Yeah. And you touched on it just briefly there, but about childhood. Mm-hmm. And so I think now's a good time because I know this story, but it's pretty amazing. And uh, would you like to talk about what happened when you were a kid? Yeah. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio, um, back in 1975. And uh, my mom and dad had been married for actually five years before I came along. But it was, I don't think, ever good. And they were separated by the time I was born and divorced shortly thereafter. My dad had some serious issues as it relates to anger control and addictive behavior, I think that, well, I think very strongly that he had carried a lot of post-traumatic uh, stress uh, from his experiences in Vietnam uh, in 1966 and 67, where he was uh, an infantry Marine. Uh, never really spoke of it much, but I, I knew that he definitely had some social disorders and, and things of that nature. Um, long and the short of that is it's my understanding that uh, my mom had gotten custody after she had finally broken away from a, an abusive relationship. Um, you know, she had talked later on about how he'd actually, you know, been violent with her, pulled a gun and things of that nature. And it had taken her quite some time to break away from that. Uh, domestic violence type of a um, relationship and she had gotten custody and he had gotten a visitation um, and evidently he wasn't very happy with that whole arrangement and you know one thing about my father is that while he had a lot of things that uh, were maladaptive in his life and very negative he was also extremely charming and smart um, and so he had decided that he was going to take me for a visitation over Christmas 1978 and never come back. And he went through great lengths to kind of mask and cover his tracks, you know, planting uh, information in a trash can. I know it sounds pretty archaic today, but we're talking about 1978, right? No internet, no, nothing to follow up that way. So uh, literally looking for evidence in trash cans and things of that nature would be, you know, reasonable. And he planted false leads and things um bought a vehicle in cash and and we were on our way how old were you then i was three three i was three 
Um, I don't have any independent recollection of, uh, of that time. It's my understanding. A kid's memory doesn't even really start coming around until about age four is what I think I've, uh, I've read or heard. So uh, it's not uncommon that I wouldn't have remembered that specific series of, uh, of events. But we uh, uh, headed south, I guess, through New Orleans. Um, he was supposed to have a long weekend, so it gave him time. And called my mom and said, uh, you'll never see him again. Uh, and he meant it. And um, made our way through Texas, where I guess he had set up some sort of interaction with an underground kind of um, organization that got him set up with some fake birth certificates and fake identities and all that. And, um, and, uh, and we were off. Uh, he chose the Seattle area. And it, to my knowledge, he'd never been here. Uh, it had mountains and Rainier beer. And uh, he was a bit of a connoisseur on alcohol, um, making light of it, but he was uh, an alcoholic, you know. And those are the, that's the criteria with which he chose to kind of pick the location where we were headed. And, and uh, so we set up shop here in the Seattle area in uh, um, the beginning of 1979. So then you grew up here, and what did he tell you about your mother? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. Um, he'd actually told me that she was dead. Um, the reality was that uh, my mother was trying with everything that she had to uh, to find me, that I ended up being on, on milk cartons and that she was uh, on local uh, kind of talk shows and trying to um, get help. The reality of the time, though, was there wasn't a, um, a national center for missing and exploited children. You know, there wasn't any, any of that. And I think that there still might be some of this mentality, even today, that, oh, well, it's just the dad, right? I mean, both their parents. Like, how, how bad could that possibly be? How impactful? And I think that there tends to be uh, perhaps a dismissiveness around how that reality uh, ends up being for the child. So, And it really, you wouldn't know it as a kid necessarily. It starts appearing later. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, because you don't, one, get to choose your family of origin. And you only know the life you've lived. So when you grow up, you get taught and trained a specific set of values. Um, both, I've heard it said that you intentionally and unintentionally teach your children your value system. Whether you're trying to or not, you do. And um, unfortunately for me, the lessons that you know were learned were uh, you know a neglectful place where I didn't have a lot of supervision, you know, had dirty clothes, didn't have uh, much uh, in the form of um, being taken care of, um, but also, you know, a, a level of uh, abusiveness, certainly manipulation to the highest degree. You know, I think for most people, they don't ever need to really question their name. 
It seems like such a simple thing, right? But for me, that wasn't reality. I had been taught and trained that, that my name was something different than it actually is. And uh, I lived with my father from three until nine years old, very formative years. And there was, there was a lot of things, you know, in that time that uh, get taught that weren't positive, you know, uh, unhealthy sexuality being one of those, uh, one of those things. And, and so at nine years old, it took six years for uh, something to break and for my mom to find me. Now, the name you use now was yeah. your given name? Yes. What was your name? What did your dad call you? Yeah. So the name, and I don't even know how, whether it was someone who had passed or what, but uh, the name was actually Kalaje. Scott Kalaje. Yep. Um, middle name had changed and the last name had changed. And my birthday was moved a week off. Okay. Yeah. So essentially everything about me that I'd been taught and trained was a lie. That may not sound like a big deal, but it really gets to the core of, you know, identity gets to the core of, of who you are, right? Yes. So for me personally, and I don't want to speak to anyone else because obviously I'm not an expert on anything. Other than other than yourself, yeah. Well, yeah. and that's questionable well, at times, but when, <laughs> for all of us, yeah. But when you said that, I had a little flashback for myself, and I was about nine, eight or nine, when I found out something very different than what I had grown up thinking. I can relate to it. Yeah, you think it's not a big deal when you just hear somebody say it, but when you feel it, it is a big deal. Yeah, for sure. And I do recall, here's, I, I, and again, I, um, I think Jeff, when we were talking on the phone, I might have even told you that I have very few memories um, of that period that I was uh, with my father, um, a handful. And you would think that, you know, certainly by age four, three to nine is extremely formative years, but not a lot of memory. So a lot of suppressed. Um, and even to this day. And so I still have probably some work, you know, to do in there. But I remember vividly the day that I went to school at nine years old and my fourth grade teacher, Mr. Rob, um, who I, side note, is uh, he actually found me about three months ago after all these years. And uh, we had been talking and, and he'd actually written an article on his perspective of the experience of dealing with the child who was uh, missing 30, what, six years later. And that whole experience was impactful enough to him that he chose to, uh, to find me. Yeah. yeah. That whole thing. Um, you know, you and I were, I joked a little bit. One of my favorite comedians has that bit about seeing a child on the back of a milk carton while he's having lunch when he's, you know, in grade school, and he's already kind of like an, has a an anxiety disorder that's kind of growing up in him. And he says, I can't even enjoy lunch because now I've got this looking at me at the back uh, of the milk carton and I, I need to solve this case, you know. And uh, it's just how often does somebody come across that? Yeah, well, I'll, if anyone's listening that's under, I don't even know what, um, 
certainly 35, they probably won't even get the reference because we don't have uh, missing children on the back of milk cartons anymore. But that was once a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's truly amazing. And so uh, look it up if, if on the Internet if, uh, if you're younger and you don't know about that. Um, okay, so your mom finds you. Yeah, so I'm nine years old. I go to school like any other day. Um, and this is the day that, um, my teacher kind of has to make up a story for me to stay after school because that's when the, uh, detectives have come. And, and, um, so I'm introduced to this guy, at least in my mind, it's this dude that walks in with a trench coat on or whatever. Like, I don't know if that is really it, but that's what I've formulated in, in my brain. And, uh, he's a King County detective and, um, he says, hey, there's somebody here that wants to meet you. And so I get uh, ushered back to an office and I meet my mother, which is significant considering that I had been manipulated into believing that she was dead um, my whole life. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Many layers of betrayal, um, certainly a lot of anger, a lot of fear, Um I don't really know this person. I get ushered back to um, to Ohio where I have a younger sister and brother waiting. Um, you know, they're, well, my sister's five years younger than me, so she would have been all of, what, four, and my brother too, and, um, and my poor stepdad. You know, I mean, he probably had no idea what he was getting into, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, man, I I, uh, I did not adjust well. I did not. I was extremely angry, um, closed off, and resentful um, kid for quite some time. And I know my mom, and you know they did their best. And I know that I was taken to counseling as a young uh, as a young kid, um, but I didn't take to it. I didn't, um, I basically just pushed it away. I wasn't open, uh, to really anything at that time. And so I kind of, I think in a lot of ways, let, uh, anger be my emotion. Um, I don't know if it's true or not, but I've heard it's, uh, it's said that, uh, you know, anger's not actually the root emotion, it's pain. And, uh, pain goes only a couple of different ways. Uh, goes to anger or sadness. And uh, for a male in our society, uh, oftentimes the machoistic approach uh, doesn't allow for sadness to occur. How many times have all of us heard, boy, I'll give you something to cry about? Oh, yeah. And I think it can happen together, but it's only in those private moments where you feel the sadness. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and... Anger works for a lot of people getting through life, but boy, is it exhausting. Well, and it's, I think it always is destructive. Um, We look at a lot of the issues that we have in society. Um, And I can't speak to the the fire side of the world, but I make up that some of our listeners are probably from, um, you know, law enforcement, fire and corrections and, you know, who who knows uh, else. Um, how many of the people 
that we deal with on a day-to-day basis are their behavior is just exuding anger and well that comes from somewhere yeah and uh anger held inwards can lead to depression and anxiety so a lot of the people we're seeing they're letting it out especially on your side we tend to see more of the people that are on the anxiety side Mm. more and more calls are dealing with mental health issues you know there's nothing physically wrong with the person but they've called 911 because of that it's an increasing number of calls yeah and then throw shame in there right <laughs> and uh and then you're in big trouble yeah. I, I always say that i think shame's the devil's trump card you know it's it's the one thing that would tell you that you're bad you know um not what you've done is but you are and uh, listening to that narrative and believing it, it really is a self-imposed death sentence in a yeah. lot of ways. I know uh, Bene, Brene Brown mm-hmm. yeah. has done a ton of work on that issue. I've read some of her stuff. Yeah, I really like Brene Brown mm-hmm. and a lot of her, uh, um, a lot of her concepts. Uh, and I think, what is it? They say that, uh, and I could be misquoting her, but does she say that, uh, is it empathy is the antidote to shame or is it, uh, vulner- vulnerability? Yep. That's there it. it is. Vulnerability is the antidote to shame. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I really like that because if we're being honest, how many people in warrior culture are truly willing to be vulnerable? Well, you are right now with this podcast. It's taken a long time. Uh-huh. <laughs> But you're telling a story, and because we're going to lead into a little bit more uh, mm-hmm. regarding this issue. So you've gotten through high school. You went into the Marine Corps. Yeah. How were you doing then? Handling things pretty good? No. No, I, I think that my approach to the traumas of my childhood, you know, through betrayal and all the rest of the things, were really in a lot of ways avoidance. Um I think that, one, I had to learn to be a survivor. Um, I pretty much just dismissed away the traumas. Hey, everybody's got a story, right? Like, it's not a big deal, and just keep it pushing. Never let them see you sweat, you know, those type of things. And then, of course, you go into, or I go into the Marine Corps, where that type of warrior culture is, you know, ramped up to, you know, a hundred times, where it's... The mantra is, you know, pain is just weakness leaving the body and, you know, all these other things sure. that serve the Marines well. Um, there's a reason why it's one of the finest fighting forces the world has ever known. However, it's not uh, a good mentality for long-term success in relationships, um, in being honest, being vulnerable, you know, uh, truly, you know, finding that balance, right? It's really, I found, especially being in the infantry myself and, um, was, it's really a lot of culture of neglect and abuse, really. Um, and a lot of that self, right? Uh, if you're falling back on a run because you have, um, stress fractures in your feet, right? Um, you're, you're, 
supposed to suck it up and keep running. No one cares that you have stress fractures in your feet. Um, they care that you're not carrying your part. You're not doing your part as part of the team. And, and then so the, um, the shame that's associated with that, you know, that gets poured on, I think, creates a culture. And again, it serves well. Oh, yeah. For combat, mm-hmm. it serves well for all those things in the short term. But, but in the long term, it creates, I think, a mentality that can continue to carry out through life of self-neglect, self-abuse. Um, I snapped a tendon off of my, uh, uh, my finger. And just kind of as an example, snapped the tendon clean off it. But I was just like, eh, it's just sprained. It's no big deal. I literally waited like three or four months to have it looked at. And by that time, you know, tendon shrink. So they barely could surgically repair it. Mm. And that's dumb. You know, you can think, anybody can think that. Why would you do that? It's stupid. Well, it shows a mentality of, you know, kind of when you grow up in trauma, abuse, neglect, when you go into it in your career field, and there's a lot of it, at least from my experience in the Marines and probably the military in general, or certainly combat arms, and then in policing. You know, there's a lot of, at least historically, there's a lot of the same, you know, um, you don't get to use sick leave. You know, a lot of those, a lot of those old school kind of, uh, mentalities. Oh yeah. I can relate. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're getting better. Well, absolutely. We're getting better. Yeah, We're getting better. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we're getting softer. I think we're getting smarter in yeah. this regard because as you were talking about physical injury, Mm-hmm. One of the things you don't want to do, I'm sure in police and in fire, you don't want to let down your team members. Sure. It's a huge motivating factor. And so people that are suffering emotionally will hide it, and you'll just keep going and going. And sometimes it takes a big moment to realize that you you have to do something. And other times people will come to it maybe a little little easier. I, I think we are absolutely getting better on that regard. Uh, long ways to go, but it's happening. Yeah, for sure. And even in just my 23 years of doing this, it, we have so many um, things in place. This podcast being one, you know, Code 4 being one. And I know in our agency, there has been a significant amount of resources that have been um, focused on wellness for the employee. And while I, I don't necessarily think that we really have hit the crest and we're on the downhill side quite yet, um, I think that we're, you know, we're definitely heading in the right direction with peer support and all the other things for sure that are there. Yeah, I would agree hundred percent. I've told people that in the fire service, there's all kinds of changes that happen and you know, the way we do business, but this change has been one of the most positive that I've seen in that, okay, things are finally being talked about. And it took a lot of suicides for people to finally start talking about it, I think is one of the factors uh, back about 10, 12 years ago, I think, police and fire. So we are getting better and it's good. And this, you know, for anyone listening, there's a, uh, there's a lot of people at code four uh, dedicated to helping and people know have been there. Uh, they just want to help you. There's nothing in it for them other than just wanting to give back. Join us in part two as Scott's story expands. He talks about an achievement-based self-worth 
and how some of those early trauma eggs in his basket that shaped his outlook and actions caused others and himself some serious pain. Whatever, 25, you've had it. Code 4. Code 4, 11.04. Thank you to Robert Elliott, Erica Voyeur, and Jim Gould for their voices and help with the podcast intro. The music heard is Wa Game Loop by Kevin McLeod. You can find it on the web at incompetech.filmmusic.io slash song slash 4602-wa-game-loop. And the license is at filmmusic.io slash standard-license. All of the music information is posted in the episode description. Thanks for listening. Until next time, this is JR signing out.